Welcome to Subscribing to Wellness, the show where Rachel Newman and myself, Daniel Fairman, sit down with leading founders, executives, and investors committed to building a healthier future for consumers. Today on Subscribing to Wellness, we are joined by Sanzo founder and CEO, Sandro Rocco. The idea for Sanzo originated when Sandro, a Queens-born Filipino-American, was walking through an Asian supermarket in Manhattan's Koreatown and noticed there was a gap between American brands and the legacy Asian brands. Sanzo is an Asian-inspired sparkling water made with real fruit and zero added sugar. We talked to Sandro about the crowded beverage market, educating his consumer, and so much more. Sandro, welcome to the show. Good to be here. Thanks so much for having me. We're really excited to be chatting with you today. For our listeners, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and Sanzo? Yeah, sure. So first off, thank you so much for having me. I am Sandro Rocco, the founder and CEO of Sanzo. And we're the first Asian-inspired sparkling water made with real fruit plus no added sugar. We got started about well over three years ago in, in New York City. And I'm sure we'll, we'll dive further into these details. But as of right now, you can find us in every Whole Foods nationwide, every Sprouts nationwide, a little over a thousand Panda Expresses, a couple hundred Targets. And actually, most recently, about a week and a half ago, um, we announced that we'd launched into 200 Safeways in the Bay Area and in Hawaii. So just really excited. It's been an interesting run for us for our first three years. You know, I spent the first year and a half of it actually kind of as a solo operator. So it's kind of nice now, you know, having a bit more of a team around us and kind of getting to to build the brand. And so I'm sure we'll dive a lot further in, but that's the quick minute on us. <laughs> 100%. Congrats on all of the success. Yuzu Ginger is like my favorite. It just goes down so nicely, really unique flavor profile. Could you maybe talk a little bit about kind of the Asian inspired angle, like where the gap was in the market that you saw that you wanted to innovate in and kind of like what kind of motivated you to approach kind of beverage from that angle? Yeah, sure. I often say this to folks that like, I don't think I ever aspired to create a beverage company. In many ways, Sanzo is a manifestation of my own, you know, personal journey, both as a as an Asian American um, and also as someone who, you know, did want to, uh, I'll just say just more generally, like create something in the world. And so, you know, for me, what I was noticing about four years ago at this point, it was really just like a massive influx of, of Asian inspired creative works, whether they, and it really wasn't in necessarily in the food and beverage space, really across the entertainment landscape, TV, film, music. And then sure, I guess, you know, living in New York City, you know, we were also seeing a lot of, you know, a lot of the restaurant scene kind of change over as well. And, you know, it's kind of paint more of an explicit picture. In 2018, we saw a film like Crazy Rich Asians become the number one film at the box office. And it wasn't just the number one Asian inspired film or the number one Asian American film. It was the number one film. Um, and it's since become, I think, the number sixth or number seventh grossing rom-com of all time. But then, and also that year, you know, K-pop, there's a K-pop group called BTS, which is now kind of, you know, I think everyone can kind of at least recite like at least like one song there, but yeah, they were selling out the Rose Bowl, you know, 110,000 person capacity stadium in LA. And the biggest thing that I kept thinking about was, hey, you know, for these kind of phenomena to occur, 
yes, there's probably a lot of Asian Americans that bought multiple tickets to go see Crazy Rich Asians, or you know, yes, there's a lot of Asian Americans living in Southern California. But with those kinds of numbers, it really couldn't be just Asian Americans that have that level of fandom or fervor over over these kinds of works. And so that kind of was what got me like exploring a bit more there. And you know, and and that and honestly, like even for myself, just like just I don't know that I had really seen a potential for like Asian stuff for my identity or the things that come from our culture to be thought of as like super desirable or heck even cool. But as that was happening, I, I it, it did have me wondering, you know, whether there was room to lend my voice to this conversation. And, you know, similarly at that time, I was working actually in the technology industry and our fridges were stocked with LaCroix, kind of like the summer of LaCroix and the summer of sparkling water, at least in our office. And what I kind of noticed was between LaCroix and a variety of other sparkling water brands, you know, while they were very good, you know, they were all kind of hitting on the same exact lemon, lime and grapefruit types of flavors and just felt like, hey, is there, you know, something that we can do in this space? But that honestly, that was kind of secondary to like, my own identity as an Asian American, it just kind of bubbled up into kind of what you know what folks know as Sanzo today. Yeah, I love it. I feel like, I mean, my opinion, and I've been investing in this space for a little while now. I operated in beverage companies prior to like investing, and I truly think beverage is the most competitive subsector of like consumer that truly there is, both from picking winners as an investor, but also winning as like an operator and a founder. So I'd just be curious to like hear your kind of wisdom and kind of viewpoint on like what you think the most important things are that it takes for a founder in beverage to succeed and scale and win. And I know that's a really like broad and tough question to answer, but it's just something I'm always pondering because I just, I think it is the hardest space to win in of all of food and bev. Yeah, I mean, if we're looking at this from a purely, there's like two, there's two thoughts that come to mind. One of which is more from like the investor take, and then I think the other one's more from like the operator take. Like, I think the first one of which, for me, for sure, especially now that we're you know a venture backed brand, I, I, it's almost like a coaching point I'd give to founders trying to go down this route is if you're trying to become a venture backed, if you think you're going to be founding a venture backed brand, you must be in a category that's large enough to support an infrastructure for venture capital. It's not necessarily bad if you're not, you just need to be honest with yourself about what that is. And so there's like, there's for me like two avenues to go down. One of which is you could be GT Dave and creating an, a fantastic category like kombucha and being the owner of that, that takes a lot more time and is probably, and may not be at the earliest stages as attractive to venture investors. And so that requires a certain type of build, or you could be entering a large category like sparkling water. And if you're going to be entering into a bigger space, you know, that, that may require the level of venture capital, then having a really unique perspective or take that's something that someone can get behind. That's a bit more like, that's probably where I would start, but ultimately, you know, what I think is most important to the actual founder, like on a day-to-day basis, honestly, is a level of focus. It's really easy, I think in beverage in particular, to just be pulled in 30,000 different directions, opening up all of these kinds of doors, opening up this distributor, opening up this region. Um, doing this kind of event or paying for this kind of activation. And I think what's really helped out for us or what I think is what I have found to be really, I think like just 
gratifying about this experience? And like, is that like, as a founder of this particular type of company, um, getting to decisions is actually a little bit easier because we, from the jump kind of identified the thing, like the key audiences and occasions that we wanted Sanso to be a part of. And so it actually helped us kind of say no to a lot of the other things, but then also say, okay, if we want to go down these routes, like putting in the time and investing and going deeper into that. And so I do feel like I've heard, interestingly, in just three years, enough pitches or enough like conversations through, I don't know, like events or whatnot from founders pitching that, oh, that like eventually, or even at that time early on, literally verbatim, we want this brand to be for everyone. And kind of shocked that someone would actually say that because in a category as competitive as beverage, you know, while that may eventually be your goal, it certainly can't be, you know, your go to market through I, honestly, even the first like 25 to $50 million in revenue doesn't seem like it <laughs> to, to really have success. Yeah, I think you touched on, I mean, so many things there, but I'd love to understand. I mean, the competitive landscape is what it is. And you touched on a lot of the other players in the field. And I think obviously what differentiates you guys is your flavors in the sparkling water space. And they're very unique going after that Asian kind of flavor. I'm wondering what sort of barriers you've had to overcome from like an educational component or just marketing to the consumer. Like not everyone knows what lychee is or what yuzu is. And these flavors might not be as accustomed as like a pineapple or a strawberry to an American individual. So can you just like talk through how you kind of went about that educational component and making this kind of for anyone? Sure. I mean, the first thing I'd say is I would challenge actually to a degree, the assertion that they're not like super well-known. I think one of the things we've been surprised by is that they are more well-known than the, frankly, the investor community gave it credit for. And that's one of the biggest, I'd actually say among the bigger hurdles that we dealt with in our earliest days was actually less on the consumer side and actually more on the investor side. And so that's probably the first thing that I would say there that, you know, we've been kind of picking the geos in which you know, we know that there is a higher predisposition to folks knowing about these types of flavors. And I guess geos channels. So that's the first thing. I, that, that, that is the, the first thing I'd say there. But sure, like yes, definitely. This is not. You know, I'm drinking right now a calamansi, which definitely is less known than if you're drinking a lime, right? So definitely, you know, there's, there's absolutely that level of education. And early, like early on, that I think was what was important for about doing like real consumer, like customer testing, not really in the world of like a focus group, like actually getting out there and like trying to sell the product was getting real feedback about what we needed to do on the packaging. And so some of the biggest things for us were really making the fruit illustration um, pretty large so that even if you didn't know what a calamansi was between the fruit illustration and also the color of the can, you know, it being in the set, like you kind of let the set help nudge and do some work for you and then kind of trust. And we were able to see that, you know, a customer while they need some education, there's certain things that they can also kind of get to on their own. And so, you know, the big things for us, we think were really that level of like adding that fruit and also, you know, the the colorful, the color to the actual can. Yeah. I think too, like I've heard you talk about this before, like when it all started, you were really just right. Like running around New York, getting so much like feedback and just liquid to lips and just so many learnings, right. That like you've now taken with you as you really grow it and you scale it into, you know, thousands of stores 
more nationally. And I just, I also just really like that point that you just made about like making the imagery super clear on the can, um, not like having people kind of like guess based off of like having to like read through the ingredient list, like what's actually in this. I think that's like really unique feedback. My other question for you is just, You've talked about this a bit as well on LinkedIn, just like the capital raising environment. I think no matter how like good your unit economics are in beverage compared to like a benchmark, it just takes a lot of capital at the end of the day. And I think as early stage investors, it's like you've got to in beverage back a founder who you're confident will raise enough capital to take it the distance, but not have to raise so, so much capital that you're like diluted to the point where the like path isn't as attractive. Can you just talk a little bit about your success kind of raising capital in a really, really challenging environment in terms of just getting venture dollars on the book? Yeah, I mean, I'll say that part of it for me is that I feel, especially to that point around knowing that beverage is a capital intensive industry, but that, it, but that also there is, you know, potentially a good reward down there at the, uh, the end of the rainbow. That The biggest thing for me was investing early and gaining the lessons cheaply. And, you know, I did self-finance this in the very beginning, mostly because I knew, hey, there's going to be an environment in which I'm going to need to take a bunch of capital. Let me figure out these lessons like on the cheap before taking someone else's dollar. I have seen a number of founders who kind of skip that step. And so what ends up happening is you, know, you run into these situations where, you know, whether it's loss of control or whether it's loss of control from a cap table perspective, or even just more generally loss of control over where the brand should be going. I do think, and I, I, this may not help as much for folks who are in the mid stage, but if for folks who are starting out, is like really embrace the position that you're in um, at the earliest stages where, yes, unfortunately, you're significantly undercapitalized, but you can also do things that are a lot more under the radar and that really will pay off in the long run. I mean, me being on the production line for our first like dozen production runs, I learned a lot about manufacturing. And I even had an engineering degree. I have a chemical engineering degree, but still wasn't enough for me to like understand beverage manufacturing and be able to have that conversation with co-packers. Being in stores, packing out, help me be able to have a conversation with the distributor, with our retailers, understand pricing so that, you know, when we're having those conversations around margin, not just to our investors, but also to our partners that we're able to like understand our business. I know this conversation is a lot more about fundraising. At least for me, a lot of effective fundraising, at least in my case, comes from like having an active knowledge in your business, which I do think for a lot of time in the 20, in the 2010s had been kind of disregarded, or at least it had been okay to not know the business as long as you could just, you know, put together a very good pitch deck. And certainly, you know, as a founder and CEO, like you still need to be, like you do need to be able to pitch the vision, but at least for us, at least for me, the kind of business that I wanted to run and scale was one that I kind of knew and had an appreciation for the different levers of the PNL. And so where that's helped is, yeah, and, and being able to have these conversations, you know, we just raised a Series A, you know, earlier this year, you know, like being able to run the business efficiently at a small scale demonstrates to investors that you're worthy of their dollars to to take it to the next level. Sorry, that was yeah. a bit long-winded. No, 100%. It really resonates. I think the other thing that's interesting, right, is like when you think kind of about emerging CPG with like an Asian twist, you're seeing other brands pop up like Omsom, like Fly by Jing, like Nudie and so on. And I always think it builds momentum and like credibility and belief, both from consumers and also from like the investor community that like this Asian inspired need 
amongst like the broader American demographic is really starting to resonate and like matter to the consumer. I have this funny idea where I thought I think it would be so cool if there was just like this big strategic CPG company that combined like four <laughs> or five of these amazing Asian inspired startups under one house and just build like an Asian inspired like super house. I don't know. It'd be super cool. I don't know. I'm just like, yeah. I'm thinking out loud. But yeah, I'm a huge fan of so many of these startups that are bringing in Asian flavors. Thank you. Thank you. And all amazing. I mean, those specific brands you named, but there's more there too. Like, honestly, also fantastic founders. And I think even from like an, yeah. a, from an investor perspective, it's like, you know, I, I, not to go on like a massive like punditry here, but it's like a lot of these founders also came from under, also came from backgrounds where we had to be a little bit scrappier and yeah. know our businesses to get them to these points. And so what you're getting is like, frankly, world-class operators and CEOs. Yeah. yeah. I'm, I'm curious. Like, I feel like Daniel touched upon how difficult the beverage space is. I mean, you go to Erwan just as an example, <laughs> and the beverage wall is literally like the size of, it's just ginormous now. And we've talked a little bit about the competitive landscape, but what do you feel like is like your differentiator? Like, why am I going to the store and picking up a Sanzo at the end of the day? It's funny. I feel like a lot of times when folks in beverage will get this question, they'll talk about all the different things that they have in it and all the things that they are. And I would say for us, it's because of our of the simplicity of our value proposition. We're a sparkling water infused with real fruit, no added sugar. And we think it's like, you know, we know that there are others in the space that do it. And one brand in particular, that's quite a couple multiples larger than us, but we think it's a it's better tasting, but a simple value proposition that doesn't have to come with a lot of thought. I mean, yeah, obviously the, what I did not even mention in there was the Asian thing, which okay. is sure another reason why someone would buy it. And certainly, you know, when we're talking about usage occasions, let's say you're going into an Erewhon, easily the best supermarket sushi I have ever had and probably will ever have is at an Erewhon, but also, you know, with a sandwich or a wrap that's not necessarily Asian inspired, I would easily pair our calamansi, you know, with any, you know, with, with, you know, with, with any other, you know, food product that's being served in those grab and goes. And again, like the biggest thing for me is it's like, it's a simple enough value proposition. Most consumers are not looking for a 30 second pitch on what a beverage is. They want it to be delicious and simple and refreshing. Yeah. hundred yeah, percent. It's really refreshing to hear that. Cause like, I also feel like if you think about the evolution of beverages over like the last two years and how it was like, you have to be functional and you should throw adaptogens in and you should be like good for your gut health. Just like all of these kind of like functional beverages popping up so quickly. It's like almost to the point now where like function isn't taken like as seriously as it once was when like the first movers were really doing it right. Like maybe an Olipop, like obviously that's named very seriously because they got to function like first, but now it just feels like every single beverage is trying to be super functional and like, it almost just seems like, to your point, the winners are just going to be simpler and just great tasting, right? And well-capitalized and with a great founder. The biggest thing I'd add there too is, at least for us, has been one, you know, if you respect your, if you respect the consumer, you re, I think if you respect the consumer enough, you realize you only have a certain amount of time to make a certain impression on it, right? Mm -hmm. And for a lot of folks, they will spend that time, you know, whether it's in their marketing or their packaging, talking about the different functions in the product. The fact is the majority of Americans, I mean, as much as they want to think that they do, it's like, it's, it's just not, it's just, 
if you're spending all your time doing that, you're not talking about anything else. And to your point, that's where you get to a level where maybe even function is commodity. And yeah, I started this brand mostly because I wanted Sanzo to be part and reflect a larger cultural conversation that was happening across mediums. I was saying about like TV, film, and music that like, even though we're in the food and beverage space and we love what we do to most Americans, even ones who love this stuff, it's actually a small percentage of their time. They're spending more of their time watching Netflix or listening to music on Spotify. And so when I thought about, you know, this brand, like we wanted it to, you know, to, to, to more seamlessly fit in with folks' daily lifestyles. I don't know if that's a little bit more indirectly answering your question, Rachel, but like that's kind of who we are as a brand is we want to be part of a, we, we want to be part of your every day. It's almost like you don't have to think about us. You're seeing us in, in, in other parts of your life. When you get to era, when you get to that Erewhon shelf, you don't have to sift through the 30,000 other brands that are there. You just know that I've already been, Sandals is already part of my life already part of culture. So I'll just pick this one up and throw it in. Yeah. I think that's super interesting. And you brought up so many, like, like there's such an avenue for the Asian accompaniment of like a, like an Asian beverage or that flavor in like the sushi market or like in the grab and go section, or like when you don't want to think about all of those like other adaptogens or I don't want caffeine. I don't need like mental clarity right now. I don't need (laughs) like coconut oil in my drink. Like I just want just plain like seltzer, but with some sort of flavor. Like it's true. People sometimes just want the simplest thing and we don't get it enough, especially in beverage. Like it always has to have a function, but sometimes like we don't want the function. Like we actually don't want it. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I feel like there's like those two things that like you just must have that like consumers aren't going to pay attention unless you don't have them, which is just like sugar calorie level. Sure. Like, if, you don't, if you're high in sugar and high in calories and you're trying to play in sparkling water, like it's probably game over, but like it's just an expectation that you have it. And then like outside of that, it's just then people trying to do too much more beyond flavor that I'm seeing um, pretty often. But no, really appreciate the insightful answers, Sandro. One question we ask all of our guests is just how they subscribe to wellness. So what are some habits that you're focused on a weekly basis to ensure you're living a healthy life while managing challenging business that Sandro is? Yeah, most recent thing, and I committed to doing this after we raised our Series A and were able to get some more some more, a bit more resources. And basically it's that over the last few months, I've actually started to see a therapist to kind of make sure that like the mental health part is there just because like, I know, you know, now if I'm doing my job correctly, you know, we have three amazing directors on the team who, you know, have experience in CPG, their teams beneath them are phenomenal. And it's really my job to be, you know, an effective leader and frankly, like human for all of these different teams and all these different functions. You know, what the sales team needs out of me is going to be very different from what our finance and operations team needs out of me. But in order to be that person, truly, you know, the mental health aspect, I, I don't know that I can, I, I think I'm, I'm so happy that's being talked about a lot more. And I'll say, especially among men who are in leadership positions, because I, I do, it, it still has that kind of stigma. And I'm kind of proud to report that over the last several months, like not that I, I'll say that, not that I felt like I was, um, in too deep of a situation, but just it's just the ability to have someone to talk to. It gives me proper context on my business, my own self-worth, I suppose. And like just having those kinds of conversations allows me to be 
you know, a better, I think a better leader, a better manager, better human for our team. And that ultimately my hope is just wanting to create a great company culture that people want to come and work at every day and feel like they have purpose coming in here every day, because that helps them also, you know, have better conversations and relationships with their families, with their significant others, with their friends, just like that level of presence, I think it's just really helped me out a lot over the last several months. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. That's one of the best answers we've had on the show. I think like a lot of people talk about the importance of hydration, sleep, exercise, and they talk about how it relates to their mental health, but then like directly like answering in terms of the way you're approaching mental health specifically, I think is really refreshing. We had a founder on who's starting like a premarital kind of like counseling company where it's like, let's start doing this before problems even arise. And I compare it to like, I think it's the same thing with mental health, like the same way we do physical exercise every day. Like we could be doing mental health exercise, even if we don't feel like in the present moment, we're in like a dark hole already, we could be doing it preventatively. So that really resonates with me. Where can listeners learn more about Sanzo? Yeah, I mean, I'd say the easiest place is through our Instagram at Drink Sanzo or our TikTok at Drink Sanzo. Of course, if you want to read more of the, the specific things, you know, I go to drinksanzo.com. If you want to see how we how we bridge cultures, how we live out our mission, our socials are going to be a lot more of a dynamic platform than our website. So I would encourage folks to check us out there. Or also, you know, I'll also share company news on my own personal LinkedIn. Of course, our brand's LinkedIn as well. Love it. Thank you so much for your time today. Of course. Thanks so much for having me. This is fun. Thanks everyone for listening to today's episode. Feel free to rate, review, and share the podcast. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to Wellness. If you'd like to sponsor us, please see the supporter link in our podcast bio. We hope everyone has a great rest of week filled with wellness, and we'll see you next time.